This is the Ether Review, a talk show passing the components of the Ethereum global computing platform and its ecosystem. Building on a basic knowledge of the blockchain, we seek to understand the mechanics behind this new generation computing network and the services it powers. Today on the Ether Review, I'm joined by the Australian godfather of cryptocurrency, Nick Addison, and we're going to be discussing his model for the digital Australian dollar. Thanks for joining me, Nick. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks for having me. So let's look at this. Uh, let's look at this model you've developed. It's largely a consortium-based uh, blockchain model. But I mean, to begin with, how about we examine the problem and then uh, and then look at the ontology of what you've designed? Sure. So I guess I originally sort of came at this problem. Uh, I was working on in Australia they're implementing immediate payments. Uh, so it's called the new payments platform. I don't know why they've called it that because it's going to get old at some point. Uh, and it's something which has been done uh, quite a lot around the world. Um, UK already has it. UK faster payments. Singapore with G3. Um, you know, a lot of lot of countries are implementing you know immediate payments. And when I say immediate, I mean seconds to minutes um being able to transfer funds into or credit funds into someone else's bank account so pushing funds into other people's bank accounts and that's using that's built on in australia unlike some of the other countries that's built on on the swift network uh so in other countries a lot of it's built on uh Voca link which is sort of like a hub and spoke model um in, in australia the swift uh won the deal uh so basically a, a billion dollar deal over 10 years to um, implement infrastructure to be able to uh, send payments. And there's a, there's a, there's a bit to it, uh, but I was working on this for a year. Uh, and plus, I was also working quite a lot in the, in, in the, the cryptocurrency space, in, in, you know, in the blockchain space, distributed ledger space. And I was like, well, could you do NPP on a distributed ledger? Um, you know, when you, when you look at the NPP, it's built on the ISO 20022 standard for the for the non-payment nerds. That's pretty much the the standard now. If you're going to build a, a immediate payment system, that's the standard message format you use to to orchestrate messages between your different financial institutions. And it's very big. Like it's you know it's a big XML uh, payloads with lots of fields, like literally thousands of fields. So I was looking at well, how how would this work in a distributed ledger, ledger space? So originally, I was trying to sort of shoehorn the you know, the ISO twenty o twenty two standard in, into a, a distributed ledger, uh, but soon realised that that's not really a good approach. So probably one of the first things there is a lot of these fields and these messages is all identity based. Um, uh, there's repeating in in the, in the ISO world. You have they define many actors in an exchange of a payment. Um, so you have the creditor, uh, the the uh, creditor agent, the credit reversing agent, which is on the receiving end, on the sending end. You have the debtor, the uh, debtor agent, debtor reimbursing agent, and there's yeah, there's a whole heap of different actors in there. Um, and all of these messages are containing uh, business identification code. They're big numbers, but they've got repeating fields for like contact details, phone numbers, email addresses, uh, and a lot of them are all repeating. So in in a, in a Distributed ledger world or a blockchain world, and I'll use those words sort of interchangeably for the moment. Um, identity sort of baked in, um, so you can just re refer to what what I call the the, the blockchain um, identifier or blockchain account ID. Uh, 
Um, so you don't need to repeat all this stuff. And the other thing is that these messages are about exchanging between financial institutions. Uh, so it's I send a, a, a um, credit transfer, a request for a credit transfer from one financial institution to another. So in, in ISO terms, that's a uh, PAX 8 message. Uh, and then the other institution acknowledges that and sends a, what they call a PAX 2 back. And if that's successful, then a message gets sent off, a PAX 9, off to the central bank, which then gets instructed to transfer money between the exchange settlement accounts and then sends a uh, what's a notification, which is a PAX 2 message, back to the institution. So you know, on the happy path, that's quite, you know, that's quite okay. You're having all these different messages uh, being sent to each other. But things get a bit hairy when you... Uh, have failed message as and potentially messages coming out of order. You get a you get a notification um, that you know something successful before you've actually received the original message, and you can get all sorts of weird things happening. And that's where the blockchain distributed ledger comes in with the consensus mechanism, because effectively what it's doing is uh, coming to consensus about a particular state. And you can think of as a blockchain distributed ledger as a you know a giant state machine, uh, and everyone's agreeing the state. So that's when I sort of abandoned the uh, the idea of using ISO 20022 messages uh, on a blockchain distributed ledger, and then sort of freed my mind, if you like, on on how something uh, like this could work on on a blockchain. So when you say that uh, that messages can arrive out of order, this is something that uh, there was a comment someone made about how you have two different ways of updating a distributed database. One being the two-phase commit method and or approach, and the other being an eventually consistent approach. And it sounds like there are two phases to updating the state of the network in the ISO model that, that you originally uh, were running with. And the blockchain approach or the distributed ledger approach is a, an eventually consistent approach where everything kind of just makes sense on its own uh yeah, potentially so it's not like like in the australian mpp model it's not like there's a central database which or you know a central hub where everyone's sort of updating the it's actually in, in a way it's a decentralized system that what swift is actually implementing um they effectively have gateways at each of the financial institutions, and they, you know, they're sending these messages across the SWIFT network to each other. But yeah, as you say, there's that. How do you, how do you, how do you come to agreement of something between a particular state? So it's yeah, as I was saying, it was the send the send the instruction effectively, and you get a you get a confirmation. Um, uh, I can't remember what it's even called now. Uh, a, you know, a status basically back um, confirming that that something's happened, but it's not working on like a, a central database, like a two-phase commit w would do. I guess it's a, a bit like that, but um, yeah, it's that uh, confirmation back as opposed to sort of having a baked-in consensus model into into the protocol you, you're using. So how did you adapt your uh, your thinking to a blockchain approach? Yeah, so so when you so take something like Ethereum, because we're on the, on the Ether review, let's just use Ethereum as an example. So you have the, uh, the standard token, the ERC20 token, which I'm sure a lot of your viewers are familiar with. If, if they're not, it's basically a standard contract with a standard interface about how to tokenize something of value. Um, so we can, you can issue a token, you can transfer a token. Um, so initially, I was, well, let's, let's start with that. What ha how... How could you issue using an ERC20 token a, um, a digital 
dollar, and let's just say an Australian dollar, or or a DAD as we like to call it, a digital Australian dollar. Effectively, you've got two choices uh, using the standard token. You can have uh, <laughs> a financial institution issue a token. So let's just say you had Yellow Bank, uh, and they created the token and can issue it to their, their customers. But there's a few problems with that. Uh, so effectively, you, you, could, you basically have the customers who deposit money in the, in the Yellow Bank, um, and then they hold, hold that money on, their, on deposit and then issue you know, their, their customers who are requesting this, that, that token. And that's good. You can send, you can transfer funds uh, between customers, you know, Yellow Bank customers. Uh, but the problem is what happens if you wanted to pay someone at Red Bank? You, you can't, you, it's only, it's a, it's a closed system. Um, so you can't transfer to people who, who are banking at different financial institutions. The other problem is it brings in credit risk. You effectively need to price in the, the risk of that particular bank defaulting. And different banks have different levels of risk. So basically, if you get issued, you know, 100 Australian dollars, that 100 Australian dollars is going to be priced in the market. It's not going to be 100 Australian dollars. You have to weigh in the fact that that one institution might go go under. So you know, it might be 99 point something Australian dollars, or it could be could be less. It depends on the financial institution. Um, you know, if it was say, you know, Deutsche Bank at the end of last year when there was a lot of pressure on them, or you know, if there's a run on a bank, uh, those those funds are going to be worth a lot less. I didn't really want to have to create a token where this was sort of built in. Um, and this, you know, this is something, you know, effectively Ripple has done something similar. Like it, you effectively have they call it gateways, but effectively they're deposit-taking institutions take funds, issue a currency, issue a, a, a token, if you like, uh, to their deposit holders. And then each gateway, you have to price the, you know, if it was Australian dollars, there's going to be priced differently. Uh, and you have market makers in the middle who are who are basically trying to price that risk and you know and move funds through the system. So I didn't want to go with that approach. So then you can say, well, how about a central bank? How about a, a central settlement institution, ideally a central bank, issues the currency? Well, there's a few problems with that as well. One is central banks just don't want to issue currency. You know, they, 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 can, they can issue currencies to financial institutions, but outside that, they don't want to have to deal with you know, commercial entities or, or retail customers. Uh, the other problem is, and this is more from a from a financial problem for the financial institutions and, and sort of the way the financial system works is those funds wouldn't be held on the, on the balance sheet of, of the banks, which, you know, effectively the, the, which they lend against. So if a central bank issued a ERC 20 token, let's just say, um, and issued it to a financial institution who then goes and transfers that on to one of their customers, um, those those funds are no longer uh, on the bank's balance sheet, uh, so there's no real incentive for the financial institutions then to to you know partake in this. Uh, there's no real benefit for them, um, and there are there are other you know people have been trying to you know digitise cash for a long time, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why they haven't been as as successful. There's no real incentive for the existing institutions to to do this. So that that's sort of the reasons. Why the sort of the, the problem with just taking a, a an ERC twenty token, which then sort of leads into the different approach of taken. Uh, so effectively, what I've done in in the ERC twenty token, you effectively got a a ledger, a you know a list. If you think of like a in an Excel spreadsheet uh, for the for the Solidity programmers, it's a it's a it's a map of 
um, owners um, or account holders, if you like, to the, the balance of, of token that they have. Um, I've effectively split this in two and created two lists. Um, so one list is is controlled by the different financial institutions who are issuing this currency to their particular account holders. So it's a bit like sort of the standard um, ERC-20 token, if you like. But the other list is controlled by what I call a settlement institution. Ideally, that would be a central bank, but it doesn't have to be. It could be another financial institution. It could be could be something else in, entirely, which really holds all the funds within within the system. And and really, when you look at Australia and or a lot of different uh, countries implementing immediate payments, this is effectively what they do anyway. Um, so they have what they call exchange settlement accounts um, held. So each financial institution has an exchange settlement account held at the central bank. In, in Australia's case, it's the uh, Reserve Bank of Australia. And effectively what's happening is when, when you know, I send a payment to you, that's really instruction to the, to the bank to you know, debit my account and credit your account. Um, but they also send instructions to the central bank to um, you know, debit the, the debtor bank, which is the, um, you know, my, my bank, and you know, credit your bank in these exchange settlement accounts. So effectively, what we're looking at is a settlement institution control this separate ledger, um, which has the balances on aggregate for the different financial institutions. Um, and then within within a you know within a smart contract, you can basically put rules in place. So a financial institution can't issue more currency than what they've got held back at the at the um, the central settlement institution. Um, and then within the, the system as a whole, the, the, this closed system, uh, there can't be more funds issued than what's really held. So really what we're issuing here is, you know, a, we're not creating a, a new currency as such, we're just sort of creating a digital representation to funds held at a central bank. So if you take it from a customer's point of view, they deposit money with financial institution who then deposit monies to the, uh, the central bank. So. Uh, that means that the the money held at the at the central bank is actually sitting on the financial institution's balance sheet, which is much more attractive from a financial institution's perspective. And so this, uh, so are these separate? So these are separate ledgers, but are they separate blockchains? Uh, no, in fact, it's the one. So this is actually the one blockchain. In fact, it's the one contract. It's the one. If you do do this in Ethereum, <clears throat> and you can, I'm a sort of agnostic to the, uh, uh, you know, to the implementation this model but you know, since we're on the, the ether review if you're doing it in ethereum it would be the one the one contract so if from a solidity perspective for, for, for the programmers um, you effectively got two maps uh, one map is mapping uh, the the holders of the currency uh, and their balances and another another map is the list of the financial institutions and basically the, the contracts api or the, its interface ensures that um, you don't have um, more currency issued than you've got held centrally. Are there potentially privacy concerns with using a uh, a single a single ledger with with all of the identities of the participants? Uh, yes, that's a big problem if you're going to do this on Ethereum. Um, you know, you can you can you know you can try and come up with you know anonymize or you know have pseudo anonymous um, accounts um, to try and hide that. But even but even that. Even if you came up with some way, um, and you know, and maybe ring signatures and other other some of these new technologies coming out might solve some of these problems. But even then, the identity of the bank is also a problem. 
So if you, you can see how much a, a particular financial institution is is got held in within the system, um, that can be a problem, particularly if there's starts to be a run on the bank and you can see, well, this bank's in this bank's in trouble and then more people pull it out, which sort of exacerbates the, the, the problem. So yes, privacy is definitely a uh, a, a big issue. Um, so that's you know something when you're looking at implementing this is how do you how do you um, tackle the the privacy issue not just for the you know the end customers of this um, or the account holders as I like to call it but also the financial institutions and and in the you know the, the settlement institution as well. So how do you tackle it? What are the uh, do you have a solution? And if not, what are the characteristics of a solution that might uh, that might solve this problem? Uh, well, I don't have a solution on ethereum um to uh, you know i guess there's you know there's new zero knowledge proofs and there's ring signatures and there's other things coming but but those would be a those would probably raise issues with uh with customer identification in various situations wouldn't they yes yes although I, I, something we didn't mention earlier is so part of this part of, part of this solution is that the financial institution is effectively doing the onboarding. So they effectively bringing people on to the, the system. So uh, you can't in, in within this particular model, you can't just transfer funds to any any account. It has to be an account onboarded by a financial institution. Therefore, it complies with the KYC AML rules. Um, so the financial institutions create them, but they could create you know, new accounts, you know, for each transaction uh, for the for their for their customer to give you some sort of anonymity. Uh, but yeah, that's probably not going to work. So I guess going back to your your question of what model you could work. So I guess I guess the quarter people would say they have a solution for this, where you know you're 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 issuing uh, this currency and only only the the actors, so the financial institution is issuing it, and and this and the um, the settlement institution and the you know the person receiving it would would see it so um so certainly quarter would say they they have a solution and i'm sure the you know the, the ibm is with their hyperledger fabric uh certainly with fabric 1.0 have uh gone a long way to addressing privacy so they have a concept of channels it, it's it's similar to the quarter concept except it, it has to be pre pre-set up so you you set up um i'm gonna i'm gonna set up this channel and only these particular um participants can can see the data in, in this particular particular channel um which is a little bit different to the the quarter approach which is more, more dynamic you, you sort of you can when you're creating the transaction specify you know, who are the participants and who who are the notaries or notary or notaries it can be can have multiple of that particular transaction but uh but these are all slightly imperfect solutions by the sounds of it correct uh you know um i there's you know quite a few issues which need to be addressed um so it's it's not something where you know i've got a got an implementation and let's let's rock and roll with this so it's more here's a here's a model of how it could work uh and then let's you know start seeing whether we can address some of the issues because it, it's not a um you know it's not a perfect model um and you know neither are you know the other models which are, you know people are looking at as well whether it just be you know centrally bank issued or issued by the financial institutions as well so what are the main issues that you have identified i mean we've got i mean identity is a clear one but then so is uh, identity blinding uh, what other uh, problems are outstanding in this model or, or in all models yeah sure sure so 
Yeah, so and we covered off privacy there. Um, scalability, I think, is is an issue. So scalability in terms of number of when I say scalability, I mean number of nodes and number of you know participants in this. Like like if you're going to do this on a, on a retail sense and have you know use it for point of sale. Um, and for online, you're going to have a lot of people running running nodes. Um, so scaling, you know, a distributed ledger system which can scale up to have you know a lot of people running nodes is still something I think is still an unsolved problem. Same with throughput. Um, so being able to pump through a large number of transactions per second. So um, you know, in Australia's case, I guess we're we're not a, a large currency, so uh, country, so. You know, we're, we're looking at about a thousand transactions per second. I guess is what we're sort of scaling that thing up to to be. So that's not, you know, that's that's not that's that's doable. Um, but if you're going to take it, you know, to larger places, then you certainly want to be getting into the the tens of thousands of um, transactions per second. So then you, and then then you start having these compromises between, um, you know, trying to get speed by, you know, centralizing. Uh, the number of number of nodes um, versus having um, you know a more decentralized approach, but then having to to give up on you know the, your your throughput and, and and I guess your your latency time for for these transactions to go through. So that's definitely an issue, and um, you know I watch with great interest um, you know the different technologies emerging uh, on that front. Another another issue, I guess, is uh, finality. Um, so something. In you know it's probably well documented in the the Bitcoin and the Ethereum space um, is, is when is a transaction final? Um, so there are alternatives. Um, so you know once it gets through the consensus mechanism, it is is final. So what I, what I mean by that is, how do you know that if I transfer funds to you that you know you're safe to use those funds? You know, how, you know effectively in Ethereum sense, it's you know you have to wait a number of confirmations and then. You know, statistically, it's you know it's very unlikely that uh, you know there's going to be a, a fork in the chain and you're going to lose lose those funds. So that's that's an issue as well. But I think it's, I mean, for me, the privacy is the the biggest issue. issue. Uh, and then just looking at the at the you know the performance side of things, the, the scalability throughput and the late latency side. So looking at what we have in our toolbox, I mean, I can see how uh, state channels might have some. Uh, some application here, as might additional consortium ledgers that split up these retail and settlement institutions in more of a fractal fashion. I mean, is that is that something that might... yeah, definitely, definitely the the bit like I, I could see this being applied where you, you know you you have a consortium, you have a, like a closed loop. Um, so you know, I'm, I'm working with um, Agri Digital at the moment uh, with um, in the agriculture space. So you you could say okay. We, uh, amongst the, the the buyers in this system, we're going to issue, and we're we're going to, and we don't need a central bank. We just need a bank um, who are going to basically issue the currency under this system. Therefore, we'll, we'll be able to digitize um, agricultural commodities, so basically tokenize grain, if you like, and then, um, and we'll be able to exchange grain along the agricultural supply chain between the, the various uh, buyers along the supply chain using a digital dollar basically uh which is held centrally so uh i think that's going to be how, how you could you know use it initially and, and i guess addressing some of those scalability issues um and then you know you can do that on a you could set up a private network which i guess goes some way to addressing some of the privacy issues but you still you know for something on, on ethereum you still have visibility of what's you know who who has what but yeah maybe that's not such a, a bad thing so Definitely be able to, to split it up and having these different um, 
different ledgers, if you like, running for you know particular purposes within a, a consortium is definitely a sensible approach. And what a lot of this comes down to is actually mapping the existing relationships that these organisations have to a infrastructure that preserves the conditions they're used to operating in and that they have been legislated to operate within. Uh, yes and no. I mean, certainly in the financial world, yes, they're, they're legislated and have to operate in certain worlds. Um, I guess it's quite refreshing having stepped out of the financial world and into the agricultural world, uh, who are nowhere near as uh, regulated. So there you do have the freedom. You can change the rules. Um, so you can get a consortium together and say, well, you know, we've been doing it this way for the last, you know, um, so many hundreds of years or uh, you know, tens of years or whatever, whatever it is, and say, well, let's just agree that you know we're going to change the rules and this is how we're going to do it going forward. So that's definitely possible, and that's certainly um, you know something. You know, at Agri Digital, we are trying to you know really change the industry and and move it forward. You know, digitize it basically, move from triple copy carbon receipts uh, to and paper based into the digital world. So AgriDigital is an agricultural finance product, and it was really great. The uh, I saw a tweet from Emma Weston, who's the CEO over there. I don't know, co-founder anyway. Yeah, um, CEO, yeah. CEO, okay. <laughs> um, and she uh, and it was uh, it was about the perceived uh, hype of various uh, fields of technological development, and the one that was the most underhyped in this uh, in this highly subjective. Um, highly subjective chart was agritech, which I can certainly identify with because I come from an agricultural background and crazy stuff is happening in agriculture, but it's not very fashionable. And so you guys have combined finance, these this awesome disruption taking place in finance with the awesome disruption taking place in agritech. So what is AgriDigital's play here and, and how does some of these ideas, which seem to be in some way, uh, just judging from the way you talk about them, uh, inspired by your experience at AgriDigital? Uh, you know, I've sort of been there about two months now at AgriDigital uh, and it, it was a common problem. So I'd, I'd work with AgriDigital um, before starting full time and I'd work with other clients as well who all had the same problem. How do we, you know, if we're using smart contracts and we're, you know, we're changing the way, uh, you know, business is done, um, but we don't want to deal with a, you know, a volatile cryptocurrency. And, you know, on Ethereum, like Ether wasn't never really intended to be a, a you know, digital currency on its own own right. So they're all after how, how can I use Aussie dollars with these these contracts to do all sorts of things. So so most most people, in, so I'd worked in a consulting company before, before this and most of the clients are trying to tokenize something of value uh, and there's all, all sorts of things of value but when you transfer something of value there's usually a payment on the back of it payment in in a fiat currency so it was really <clears throat> coming out of that it was well it's fine we can go and do all these cool things we can tokenize all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff but unless unless we can come up with a solution to create a a fiat token to to exchange when we do that value transfer, um, we're not going to get that far. Um, so certainly, you know, bringing it back into the agri digital space, um, you know, digitizing title is certainly something um, we we're we're interested in looking at. Um, but there's also other areas as well. So certainly, provenance um, are, is a big thing. So provenance of of at these agricultural commodities, whether that's grain or, or you know livestock or you know whatever whatever you're producing, um, 
along the along the supply chain. Um, so that doesn't necessarily well, it doesn't really need a, a a digital dollar as such. So I guess we're we're playing and you know working in a, in in a, in a number of different areas, um, which the need for a you know a digital dollar is is one of them. Um, and we actually did a we actually did a pilot last year. We had a contract between a farmer and a, and a buyer, uh, and did a, a live um, transfer of title. And and for there we you know we created you know we issued a. A, a digital dollar, you know, in a very closed system. So, you know, the the, the farmer can only re- redeem those that digital token, you know, th- through us and the, and the, the bank we're working with. So, it's, you know, it's a very sort of closed control system. But we actually did do uh, a number of um, live transactions um, exchanging agricultural commodities uh, on a uh, on a blockchain. So with new digital dollars, with new digital currencies that are, that are recognised in, in the way that a, uh, the, the digital Australian dollar, the DAD, would, uh, would theoretically be, I mean, that's, that's really what we want, isn't it? A digital, uh, a digital currency that's recognised by the existing financial uh, institute or infrastructure. So there are all these crazy new things that become possible when we have the ability to do this. Correct. So... That being the case, what do you see for the future beyond agriculture, or, or, or not? I mean, if you want to stick to the, stick to agriculture, that's uh, it's a great place to uh, it's a great sandbox to to look at how this might change the way the world works. But what does it mean when we get these new digital currencies? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that that tokenizing things of value, and maybe we can sort of explore that a little bit more about you know the, the weird and wonderful things people are looking at. Um, so certainly, people are looking at you know traditional financial assets, um, and you know, um, uh, so you've had you know Ethereum on before. Um, so John Pello, he's you know effectively tokenizing loans, which is a you know a, a classic um, asset from from the financial world. But you know, outside of that, there's there's you know um, there's people to- tokenizing your hours worked. There's uh, people tokenizing advertising or the rights to do things. So the you know the rights to advertise, uh, whether that's online or a, or a digital sign, um, the rights to um, intellectual property, whether that be you know digital rights, so you know movies or music, um, the and then you can get into the more extreme ones. Probably my favourite one was um, tokenizing horse sperm. Um, but, you know, you can... <laughs> Only in Australia. Yeah. Well, it's actually worth a lot of money uh, if you get the right horse. Really? Is that going to yeah. be on Poloniex anytime soon? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. Know. I don't know what. I don't know how you'd shorten it up too either. So yeah, that'll be uh, something to something to look out for. <laughs> um, but then, move, but moving beyond that. So for for me, when you sort of move. Looking into into the future, really, I see this as APIs on on the blockchain and being able to offer financial services within a in a blockchain and these financial services being able to to you know um, interact with each other. So we're starting to see some of that already. Like people are starting to see that and sort of starting to get ready for that. Um, so, for example, um, um, Thomson Reuters are, are doing quite a bit of work on. Being able to provide an oracle of data for you know the various you know whether that's stocks or other other instruments, um, so that you know they're effectively offering a service um, to receive you know, a, a data as a, a, acting as a, as an oracle for for sources of stuff. You can end up having these layers of 
contracts, so tokenizing something of value, but then you could have some things sitting on top, whether they, they might be some insurance or they might be some you know, lending piece or it might be some derivative over some commodity. Um, so I, I, I sort of see different uh, layers being built on top of each other um, of these different contracts and in, you know, interacting with each other. Um, and the the digital dollar piece is sort of the you know right down the bottom is one of the foundation pieces, which is sort of why um, I've you know been spending quite a bit of, bit of time um, trying to work on well how can we how can we put that foundation block in to enable all these things uh, and you know who knows like uh, you know we don't really know what's going to what's going to evolve in that space and um, uh, and I think it's going to be you know a, an interesting ride to see what happens over over the over the coming years of what what people are going to, to um, innovate and, and invent to sit, sit on top. Hey, fantastic! Well, I think we've uh, we've wrapped that up in a nice little bow there, Nick. The takeaway from this that I'm getting though is that for us to achieve this kind of uh, this this new world of interoperable uh, blockchain assets. We need to come up with some way to bridge it with existing methodologies. Correct. You need to you know, bridge it into you know, existing currencies, to, in, in my mind, yes. Um, you know, so if the companies aren't want, you know, on their balance sheet, they, they want Aussie you – know, an Australian company wants Aussie dollars on their balance sheet. They don't, they don't want you know, a Bitcoin or an Ether or, or other more um, volatile assets. And an Aussie dollar is not just a, an asset that tracks the – uh, that tracks the value of the Aussie dollar, it actually has to be very similar in terms of its structure, the way that it is held and controlled, the institutions that issue it, and uh, and the the recourse or, or payment uh, payment methods that are associated with it. Right, like a currency is a lot more than just an asset; it is actually made up by the payment rails and the involved institutions that uh, that. Produce it and uh, and insure it, and and that's really the challenge that is that we're facing with cryptocurrency. At least that's that's my takeaway from this conversation. Yeah, I think I think so. It's you know at, at a first instance, it's a store of value, but the you know the modern store of value, it's you know it's no longer notes anymore. It's you know it's it's a balance held in a financial institution, and they they uh, and the way they that those funds move around. And I guess that's why, you know, at DEFCON 2 last year, everyone, or certainly myself, but, uh, you know, everyone got so excited when the announcement that um, Santander were going to issue uh, a euro uh, on, on Ethereum. So that was sort of like the, the first time you sort of had, an, you know, a, a, an established financial institution sort of looking at providing a, you know, a traditional asset which we could use on, on, on a blockchain or a distributed ledger. Is that still a euro, though? You know, it's like it sounds like there's more to a currency than just the. Uh, there's more than just a name here. There's more than just a uh, the authority of an issuing uh, of an issuing institution. There's actually this huge network of infrastructure that not only gives it value but mediates the risk that say might be behind the collapse of Santander. Uh, yeah, and, and maybe that sort of leads into a, another sort of interesting piece on the model which we hadn't discussed. So, what, I mean, a lot of the expense on NPP, you know, the, literally hundreds of millions of dollars each. You know, the, well, certainly the big banks are spending on implementing this thing. Is how do you tie this into your existing channels in, in banking terms, which is basically your, you know, your 
your website and your your mobile devices um how do you integrate this into your banking apps through into your core banking system and then into the plug it into the payment rails so one of the things with the the model i've got is integrating through into the the different banking systems particularly integrating into the the core banking system so you can have a payments rail but when, when i was working on npp most of my time was spent not on actual the swift's npp i was actually working on a, on a gateway connecting the the npp infrastructure provided by swift through into the bank's systems which the core banking systems is is one but there's risk management systems fraud systems there's you know there's a whole you know general ledger there's a whole stack of different systems that they have in there and that's where a lot of the, the cost is you know you're literally spending uh, hundreds of millions of dollars the, the big banks on on doing this this integration so, but one one thing on if you're putting stuff on a digital uh, on a on a on a blockchain system, and particularly this model here, and effectively in payment terms, when we're moving money around between the different participants, that's effectively a clearing leg. Uh, and one thing we didn't talk about, sorry, was the um, the, the the settlement leg. When, when you're clearing funds, and I'm sending money to you, and you send it to someone else, and it gets pinged around. None of this needs to interact back into the the core banking systems of of the the different banks. In fact, you know, a bank can be down for a day, uh, and the funds can still rotate around quite happily on on the blockchain. Uh, now, one thing we didn't talk about earlier was well, how do these things get settled? Um, so, effectively, on a on a net well, in payment terms, it's called a, a net deferred basis, which basically means periodically so once a day once an hour once every five minutes is you have to work out how often you're going to run it but let's just say it's once a day you basically look at the 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 table which had all the balances of the financial institutions and reconcile it back into the the real bank accounts held at the central bank or, or i call it the settlement institution because it, it doesn't have to be a central bank um so it's really sort of Funds moving around or, or being cleared on on the uh, on on a blockchain distributed ledger, uh, and then on a periodic basis, being able to settle those back in the, in the real world, so to speak. So, um, so one of the advantages here is you you get some you get some resilience. Um, the the consensus mechanisms built into these things can keep trucking on, uh, even though a financial institution is is offline. So this is quite strange because. You know, typically we associate a currency with a financial institution, and this uh, reduces the institution more to an administrative actor rather than an infrastructure player. Correct, correct. Uh, but the and if it was just to be that, well, what incentive would they have if they're just an administrative actor? You know, how, how they're going to? You know, if they can't make money out of it, they're not going to do it. Um, but the the key thing with this model here is those funds are actually held in their balance sheet. They they want funds on their balance sheet because that's what they lend against. Um, so there, there is incentive there for them to actually partake. Okay, well, I think that kind of wraps this. Uh, I think that fi- that actually wraps this up in a bit of a bow. <laughs> so, uh, where can people find out more, and where can people uh, find out about about a bit uh, find out a bit about yourself, Nick? Uh, a very good question, um, and I probably should start blogging some of this stuff. Um, I was speaking to an ac- academic yesterday, and he goes, oh, "I want to cite this model in my in my next paper," and I'm like, well, "Okay, well, I better I better publish something." Um, uh, so I don't really have anywhere at the moment. I guess you can follow me on Twitter uh, um, uh, at uh, Nadison N A W D I S O N, and I'm on you know various uh, Telegram and other other sort of Slack channels in the, in, the, in this space. Um, but uh, yeah, blog posts on this will have to be uh, coming soon, I guess.
Oh, well, thanks a bunch, mate. And I'll see you next time I'm in Sydney. Righto. See you. See you, Arthur. Thanks a lot. No worries. Thank you. Take it easy. This has been the Ether Review. Visit etherreview.info for more episodes, email contact at etherreview.info or follow us on Twitter at etherreview.info.